Before we begin our main event, a brief reminder that Historically Thinking is now on Patreon. When you become a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon, you not only support the podcast's weekly operations, from web hosting to scheduling to audio editing, you also enable us to do more in the future. Benefits that you'll receive as a Common Room member include a special weekly podcast, podcasts dropped in advance when possible, special events online and in the future live, input on topics, guests, and questions, competitions and prizes, and more. We will continue to produce our regular podcasts, which will still be available for free on Mondays in all your regular podcast feeds. We hope you'll enjoy being part of the Historically Thinking Common Room at Patreon. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. My guest today is Bruce Clark, who writes on European affairs and religion for The Economist. He is the author most recently of Athens, City of Wisdom, which is the subject of our conversation today. Bruce Clark, welcome to Historically Thinking. I'm very happy to be with you. So, um... One of the nicest questions that uh, even ill-informed interviewers can ask is, what's your book about? Uh, what's your book about? <laughs> what's my book about? Well, my book is a long narrative history of uh, one of the oldest continuously inhabited settlements in the world. Uh, and it tries to trace the story of Athens really from prehistory, from the semi-mythological period, right through to the present day. Uh, it includes, of course, uh, the golden age of Athens, the 5th century BC. Uh, it includes uh, the foundation of the modern Greek state. But it also includes uh, periods that are fairly obscure, not much studied, um, the so-called Frankish period, uh, even the Dark Ages. I do my best to reconstruct those obscure times. Uh, and I... Uh... I think we're going to, in the course of the conversation, we're going to focus on the obscure periods, the periods which are probably best known to to, to Greeks. I think um, uh, we've talked about the Peloponnesian War and Herodotus and Thucydides in the past on this podcast. So I'm going to do make the executive decision to completely skip over Periclean Athens and uh, go to the other, the very interesting dark corners of Indeed. Athenian history. Um, so. First of all, uh, it took me a while to realize that there are Acropoli. There, there's an Acropolis in many, many Greek cities. It's the geography of Greece. That there's a high place. Uh, there's at the, the the core of the the town or the city is a high place, a defensible high place. So it's not to say it's very interesting. I think one of the key points is, however, when we say Acropolis, we immediately think of the Athenian Acropolis, um, and it's. You have a fat. You begin in a fascinating way with talking about what lies beneath the Acropolis. So, talk about the caves and the 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 wells of the Acropolis. Indeed, indeed, absolutely. Yes. Well, as you say, um, Acropolis is a generic term, a generic term for a citadel, just as uh, Kremlin or Kremlin in Russian is a generic term. Uh, there are lots of Acropolis, uh, but one especially famous one, uh, and it is. Um, an extraordinary geological uh, formation um, with uh, limestone at the top and uh, sandstone underneath. 
Um, the limestone is actually older than the sandstone, uh, but it was somehow kind of washed upwards by various uh, tectonic forces. Um, and the limestone is both um, very hard, but ultimately porous uh, to rainwater, to the slight acidic content of rainwater. Um, and as a result, you know, there are a, a number of uh, sort of schisms and uh, fissures and uh, indeed caves uh, inside uh, the Acropolis. Uh, and from the earliest times, uh, people invested both the surface of the Acropolis and indeed the caves uh, with great holiness. That's something that we forget. We think of the Acropolis as being a great uh, sort of citadel of democracy. Uh, but in fact, it was and remained, above all, a holy place. Uh, and as you say, not just the, the surface, uh, but also the caves. And now, now the two main gods uh, that were venerated on the surface uh, uh, were, of course, uh, Athena and Poseidon. Um, but there are caves that were associated uh, with Zeus, uh, with Aphrodite, with Pan. So really, you know, the whole range of the Olympian gods were in one way or other uh, venerated in those caves deep inside the Acropolis. And going back to long before the foundation of what we uh, of the classical city, these are these are these go into the Bronze Age. Yes, I mean, I mean, well, we do know that sort of Athens was a an impressive uh, Mycenaean town. Now, most of what remains of Mycenaean Athens are the defences, uh, but you know, people have done some uh, you know, artist reconstructions of what the Acropolis would have looked like uh, in Mycenaean times, uh, and you know, there, there was uh, an, a, one of the many palaces, uh, which were also a hive of economic activity. Um, that's what we, we presume to be the case. We don't honestly know in much detail uh, about Mycenaean Athens. Um, but we do know that there was a spring, uh, in, a, a spring of water uh, that was in use in Mycenaean times. Um, and that, uh, but only for a fairly short time, uh, maybe, maybe for a few decades, um, and then some kind of landfall uh, covered the water source over, uh, so it ceased to serve that function. Uh, but um, that, that sort of vertical tunnel through the Acropolis uh, did come into play in modern history rather dramatically, and I can tell you about that now or later as you prefer. Well, I, I, I want to get to that. I want to put a pin in that and go back to that right okay. at the end of the, of the, of the podcast because it, it, so, it connects everything so beautifully in the history of Athens and the Acropolis. Um, there's something very, I almost felt like I was becoming a Jungian reading the beginning of the book because there's something very, there's the, the sort of the idea of these dark spaces beneath what we see as we imagine as pure white palaces of reason. Uh, yeah. There's these, uh, there's the, the underground and the dark and then light above. But there's also, this connects to one of the most curious, I mean, there are a lot of curious foundation myths of cities in Greece, but the Eric, King Eric Theus, um, the half snake first king yeah. of Athens that connects very nicely to these holes in the ground. Can you can you talk about this very curious way in which the virgin goddess Athena had a son and then and yes, the way it yes, is connected yes, to yes, Athens? Yes, yes, yes. Well, she, I mean, yes, she, yes. She is said to have raised Erechtheus, isn't she? Um, yeah. Uh, and yes, there, there are. I mean, well, I mean, there are a number of stories of sort of 
semi-mythological uh, figures, I mean, who, whom the ancient Athenians perceived as historical figures, by the way, um, who were, you know, had sort of snaky tails. Um, uh, and one of them is Erechtheus, another is Cecrops. Um, and the name of uh, Erechtheus also has the variant Erichthonius, um, which sounds very like uh, the Greek word chthon, which means, you know, home or soil or uh, and, and from which we get autochthonous. Um, so uh, ha- having these sort of semi-mythological um, founder figures uh, who had snaky tails, uh, it was one of the ways in which the Athenians sort of understood the profound connection uh, with the, the soil and the rocks of, of Athens. They didn't think they came from anywhere yes. else. They thought they were, you know, that it was their place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, now... Somebody is knocking on my door. Uh, can can we just stop stop for a moment while I do? While I, yep. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah. Yeah, um, it would indeed have gone wet as yes, I, yes, as yes. I did. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. Yes, Cheers. Um, sorry. Um, it's okay. I can I can I footnote it and and edit it out. Not a problem. So the so these these the there is a yeah. I would go so far as to say there's a theology of place at the very heart of the Athenian conception of of themselves. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. That's right. Yes, and, and I mean I mean over time, uh, you know. Um, King Erechtheus and uh, Poseidon, the sea god, become fused, um, and so you have well two, the two most important temples on the Acropolis were the Parthenon, you know, the, the Temple of Athena, and the Erechtheion, a place that was um, you know physically smaller, um, more refined. Um, it was also you know, very significant in the cult of Athena, um, but it was the said to be the site of the famous contest. Uh, between Athena and Poseidon as to who would be the principal protector of Athens. Um, and uh, each was to bring forth some gift to the people of Athens. Um, and you know, uh, Poseidon brought forth gushing water uh, and Athena the olive tree. Uh, and she was the one who prevailed in the contest. Um, so I suppose that you know, w- w- was a way of uh, understanding the Athenians' twin self-conception uh, as a, an important maritime power, uh, but also you know, a, an important land-based power uh, and a power uh, I mean, whose principal export uh, was ultimately wisdom and cleverness. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it's um, it's very interesting too to think that um, you know Poseidon has multiple natures, and he is also the horse tamer. So if you're an yes, aristocratic Athenian. You uh, who rides in Hippias, uh, you're also dedicated multiple dedic- ways of dedicating yourself to Poseidon and his worship and his service, uh, and the ways in which he might may or may not benefit you. Um, so, mm-hmm. but this is a small place. Um, you know, they it's a it's a small place. There are many other places that are as important or more important, and then along comes this crisis uh, in which the figure of the figures of Hippias and Cleisthenes play an amazing uh that let's say a world hist all of a sudden there's a world historical level of importance to what's going on in this small out of the way place could you explain the the revolution of cleisthenes 
Yeah, well, yes, Cleisthenes is given credit for being really the originator of the Athenian democracy. Now, I mean, we don't, in all honesty, know that much about the person of Cleisthenes, um, but we do know about the system that was sort of more or less up and running uh, from you know, soon after the time that Cleisthenes was in control of Athens. Um, uh, Cleisthenes sort of, you know, c- came to power uh, in the aftermath of the overthrow of the tyranny, uh, which had been a dominating feature of Athenian life uh, in the final part of the sixth century. Um, first, by Sistratus, um, you know, then his sons Hippias and Hipparchus, uh, and that, that tyranny is overthrown. And there's a question about what will replace that tyranny, um, will it be a move towards aristocratic rule, towards the reinforcement of the power of the old families, or on the contrary, um, will power be broadened, will the franchise be broadened? Um, and under Cleisthenes, uh, you know, the second route was taken, um, and you know, there was a clear move to involve uh, the lower classes of Athens uh, in, in the governance of the city, and a whole set of institutions for which Athens became famous, were instituted at least in an elementary form uh, by, by Cleisthenes, and a whole set of principles as well, uh, including you know, the, the idea of equality before the law, isonomia, um, and, uh, and the, the, the general ideal that institutions were very important, um, and, you, and that, that uh, the city would be governed by institutions and rules, a constitution, um, as opposed to by the will of individuals. And uh, yet, aristocracy remains amazingly important to the Athenians in ways that we can overlook. There's still there's still a a sense of many of the families that they're the ones that should be ruling. Uh, They might be ruling uh, by being voted for, but you should vote for us because we're aristocrats. Uh, Yeah, yeah, this is true. I mean, well, uh, I mean, yes, and Cleisthenes himself was of aristocratic blood, uh, you know, he carried the blood of the Alcmeonids, who were kind of, you know, the, the, the par excellence aristocratic family of Athens, um, you know, uh, um, and as indeed did, 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 did Pericles, um, you know, the, the Alcmeonids are you know, one of these clans who surface and resurface in the affairs of Athens, but interestingly, not always uh, in the defense of aristocratic privilege. On the contrary, uh, this is an example of, of well, what we might call now Tory democracy, or you know, people who people of, of, of blue blood um, uh, who are perhaps so, so confident in their privileged status um, that they feel they can be the ones uh, to extend the franchise and uh, involve the poorer classes uh, in, in the governance yeah, of the city. I, I, I always think of like the Dukes of Devonshire and their connection to the Liberal Party. And Manchester <laughs> liberalism. <laughs> well, uh, yes, I mean, I mean the, 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 well, if, 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 yes, I mean, if you're familiar with um, 19th century British history, you'll know that sort of there was a moment when you know, Benjamin Disraeli surprised everybody by um, yes. uh, broadening the franchise and as in you know, a dishing the wigs, it was called, because uh, so he stole the liberal clothes um, uh, and, and uh, opened the franchise to lower class people. Uh, and it, you know, it turned out to be quite a good political trick. Do, I mean, so uh, how do you rate the importance of this? Uh, we, we, there, we've there's been a hundred years or more. Speaking of wigs, of 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 
seeing this as the way, the means by which um, Cleisthenes or whoever, or Solon, if you wish, um, that they were able to unlock the energies of the people and that what happens next, the war against Persia could only happen if, um, if, if the Athens was the sort of democracy that it had become. Is that just, that always strikes me as a little too Whiggish. Um, what's your feeling about that? Well, look, I mean, I suppose you know, the, the, the fact is that the, um, you know, the institution of the Athenian democracy uh, and the extraordinary triumphs over the Persians against all the odds, uh, and, and they, they, they roughly coincided in time. Um, and so, you know, the, uh, they are linked in the collective memory. Uh, and look, I, you know, it's uh, uh, c- certainly there was a great energy in Athenian affairs in the Athenian people. Uh, you know, a, a, around the time of the Battle of Marathon, the Battle of Salamis, you know, first on land, then on sea, uh, the Athenians demonstrate their ability uh, to defeat uh, a Persian force with far superior numbers. Um, and, you know, and and the fact that the, the whole citizenry uh, is involved in this defeat uh, appears to be an important factor. Uh, the fact that you know it, it, at, at Marathon, uh, you know m- many of the soldiers at Marathon were hoplites. They were yeoman farmers who'd paid for their own uniform, uh, you know their own heavy clanking uniform that they jogged down the beach in. Uh, I mean, this really was a citizen army, um, and certainly this was a period of great democratic energy. Uh, of, of course, you know things can be romanticized in retrospect, and I don't discount that factor. Um, but if, but I mean, if, if you compare it with, say, um, you know, the golden age of Thebes, which happened a century later, there was you know, Thebes had been you know, a, an authoritarian state, and there was you know a, a couple of, sort of golden decades uh, in the mid fourth century when uh, you know um, the, the power of ordinary citizens was unleashed, uh, and you know to tremendous effect, and, and and Thebes became a dominant power. Uh, for for a, for, a, for a short while, as a result. So, um, it, it, exactly as you say, I mean, the trick in statecraft is to be able to unleash the energies of your citizens, um, while at the same time holding the polity together uh, and stopping short of complete revolution. I mean, m- m- most ruling classes historically uh, were very nervous of unleashing their people's energies. Okay. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I mean, you know, historically, ruling classes were nervous of unleashing the energies of their people because they felt that those energies will ultimately be unleashed against them, the ruling classes. Um, and I suppose what you see in first century Athens is a very, very successful exercise in statecraft where ever larger swathes of the population uh, were somehow empowered uh, and freed up uh, to invest their energies in advancing the interests of Athens. So we've got this then incredible moment where this small world backwater has led a league against the mightiest empire that probably the world has ever seen and pushed it back, kept it from pushing farther into their uh, into the west, uh, the Persians are on their, are at least on the, safely on the other side of the Aegean, um, and then Athens becomes the democratic center of an imperium of a, of a of a strange sort of imperial league. 
and then Peloponnesian War. I don't again, we'll pass all over all that. Um, let's pass over to. I'm, I'm very curious. Uh, after the, um, you, you talked earlier about Athens becoming eventually famous for cleverness, um, and then exporting cleverness. So if we move on 500 years up to the time of the Romans, um, the Romans continue to see Athens as the center of cleverness. If you want to import cleverness, import it from Athens. Is that is that about yes, right? Yes, I think you, you, you could broadly say that. I mean, the, some of the early Roman Empire emperors were absolutely infatuated with Athens. I mean, Augustus being one, Hadrian another. Um, uh, they, they, you know, they, they had had um, a Greek education either... Uh, either literally in Athens, or at any rate, they've had Greek tutors uh, in, in in Rome, uh, and th- th- they were convinced that um, that Athens could provide uh, the Roman Empire with the sophistication and the subtlety of thought that that it needed. Um, and indeed, you know, under Hadrian, you, you had this idea that Athens could be actually revived and reinforced as the centre of a sort of Greek Commonwealth. Um, but with a very important rider that it would stay absolutely loyal to the Roman Empire. It's a little bit like the the, the British Commonwealth, I suppose. In a sense, it's the ghost of a the the, 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 the ghost of an empire, uh, which is held together by ceremonies, by rituals, by common memories, even by sporting events. Um, you know that, that 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 was the idea of the Greek Commonwealth, which um, centered in Athens, which uh, Emperor Hadrian in particular wanted to found. And it, 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 I have to always th- rethink my conception of of time when I'm dealing with this, because Hadrian's looking back to the time of Plato, Aristotle, and that's already 400 years before. It's like you know, it, it's it's, it's like us looking back at Shakespeare. It's six or yeah, seven hundred years before. Yeah, so this, this is extraordinary. Six or seven hundred years. Yeah, yeah, and um, but, that's, but nonetheless, you know, there is a consensus um, that uh, literature and thought and poetry, uh, you know, reach an extraordinary apogee in that um, fifth and fourth century period, um, and so people in the age of Hadrian were happy to you know look back on the literature of that time and see it as a kind of benchmark. And indeed, you know, in, in, in Hadrian's time, uh, there was this idea that, um, you know, that, that, that the Greek speakers should actually cultivate the dialect of Attica uh, and sort of reproduce as closely as possible the speech that would have been heard. I mean, it, 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 it's as though we became obsessed with the age of Shakespeare and wanted in every possible respect to, to, to imitate the age of Shakespeare. Oh. It was, the, the, this oh, kind it, of obsession with us. It's very interesting because it so it so clearly mirrors what will happen like around 1500 in Italy, where you know Latin as a living language is replaced with a sort of neoclassical Latin, you know, a, a static language. Um, yes, that yes, it's yes, very yes, interesting. Yes. It's very interesting that that Hadrian and his, and likewise in a, in a very similar enthusiasm for the learning of the past, he makes the choice to sort of attempts unsuccessfully to create this sort of static Greek. Um, yes. It's, but he's also he's also he's the he's one of the first rebuilders of of Athens. This is a continuous theme given the age of the city that he's creating the new Athens, uh, slight on a slightly different site, but one which will employ the classical ruins and features that have uh, of that exist. Uh, yes, that's right. That's right. And I think and and, and this process 
went on a remarkably long time through the Roman era, I mean, through right to the very, very end of the of the Roman era, um, and, and 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 so I mean, e- even at a time when you know the empire was being ravaged by barbarian raids, and you know there, there were there had been devastating sort of barbarian raids. Uh, on Athens itself, um, uh, no, no, it, you, 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 the idea of Athens as a centre of philosophy and the study of Plato uh, is still very strong. Um, mm-hmm. you, you, well, you, you have in the in the fifth century um, you know, the extraordinary yes. figure of Proclus, uh, and we can talk about yeah. him if you like. Yeah, please, please go ahead. I mean, this is this is a this the Neoplatonic thought of of Porphyry and Proclus is tremendously important and, and overlooked in in even survey classes. Um, and these are this is this energy that will be given to Augustine of Hippo and many other people. These ideas that shape them and shape the next thousand years of philosophy. Yes, I think no, no, that, that's a very good way of putting it. Um, well. Uh, I suppose you know what, what we see in very late Roman Athens um, is uh, you know a, a strong school of Neoplatonic philosophy, um, and it's important to qualify that by saying that you know w- w- we think of ancient Greek philosophy as you know uh, supremely rational and the idea of deliberation with you know cold calculating human reason um, about uh, the ultimate nature of things. Uh, well, all, all that was there, but uh, you know, for the likes of Proclus, the great Neoplatonic teacher of the fifth century, I mean, he, he, his his pursuit was as much religious and mystical uh, as it was uh, rationalist or philosophical. I mean, he he was uh, certainly he was fascinated by the writings of Plato, his master, you know, and he wrote very important commentaries on Plato. Uh, but you know, in his time. You know, he, he would have been thought of uh, as really you know, a, 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 a priest, a mystic, uh, somebody who, through ceremonies and through rituals, was able to invoke the divine. Um, and you know, the whole ethos of the philosophy of that time is that the divine is both uh, elusive and accessible at the same time. Uh, it's um, you know the, the the ultimate nature of the divine is something that human reason can't touch, uh, but nonetheless, through certain ceremonies and rituals, we can experience the divine. Um, and then wrestling with that paradox, you know, I mean, how how near and how far are we from the divine? And exactly as you say, I mean, that dilemma um, that 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 God is both very near and very far. Uh, very accessible and very different, is also something common to the early Christian fathers of the church. Uh, so rather than thinking of a kind of a, a war, a, a, a perpetually raging war between late Platonism uh, and, and Christianity, I mean, uh, I actually was struck by the commonality between the two worlds, um, that you know that they are both struggling with how to get their heads around the fact that, from their point of view, God is both very close and uh, very far away. Yeah, I, I, I think, and I think it's important to realize for the history of Athens that um, there's this idea that maybe by 300, 400 AD, it's as if a, a car with a really big gas tank, you know, and Socrates and Plato and Aristotle had filled it up, and it's been going for about a thousand years. You know, a little Homer, a little Plato, a little Aristotle. Take you, it will take you a long way. Um, but you know, eventually, these schools—they're—they're they're old, they're decaying, and they're—they're they're running out of—they're running out of gas. 
But no, no, no. This is even at this at this moment, uh, we're from 300, 400, 500, there's still creative ener- energy coming out of the schools of Athens. And they're pushing forth ideas that will continue to drive things through the Renaissance with Platon and the rest of these curious characters in the middle of the 15th century. Uh, yes, that's exactly right. And it's not, I mean, I suppose, look, look there is a reading of history that would say that, um, you know, a kind of um, Christian theocracy, you know, suppressed independent thought and it kind of, you know, w- w- willfully suppressed the rationalist traditions uh, of the ancient Greeks to which we gratefully returned in modern times. Um, but the fact is that, you know, you know look, it, it is a historical fact that um, intellectual activity, uh, you know, did more or less come to an end uh, in Athens in the first half of the 6th century. We don't know precisely when, but, you know, by the end of the 6th century, it, it was over anyway. Um, but, um, you know, a, a, a lot of the legacy of the activity which had taken place in Athens passed to Constantinople. Uh, so, you know, in interest in, in Byzantium, they were certainly uh, you know, studying um, the legacy of the Neoplatonist philosophers. So, uh, it, you know, it, it, it wasn't as though the Athenian legacy simply died. Uh, it just went to another place. But the um, Athens has a very, for the next 800 years, <laughs> uh, Athens is, it continues, but there is there is a little bit, it's no longer either a center of learning or a center of politics. Is that is that about, is that fair to say? I think it is. Yes, yes. I mean, look, uh, well, especially concerning the period from, say, 500 to 1000, really, the written sources about uh, this period are very, very limited. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, we, you know, uh, some empresses, uh, you know, Byzantine empresses came from Athens. Um, so in, 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 in that sense, um, you know, uh, Athens is still producing remarkable figures, but they don't seem to have done much in Athens. You know, they seem to, they. they they, they become remarkable only when they arrive in the imperial capital. Um, but then, you know, from a thousand onwards, um, Athens is becoming quite important uh, as a pilgrimage center. And that's something that, you know, most conventional wisdom ignores. But certainly for um, its last 200 years uh, under Byzantine rule, um, the Parthenon becomes more and more important uh, as a place which uh, attracts uh, worshippers ranging from emperors to ordinary folk um, to the cult of the so-called Panagia Athenotisa, the, the, the All-Holy One, the Virgin Mary of Athens. Um, now, what exactly, what was the focus of the worship? We're not absolutely sure whether it was a an icon or a mosaic, or was it the mystical light that was said to emanate from the Parthenon? But nonetheless, there was uh, something about the Parthenon that uh, drew people to it, and uh, and this building was strongly associated with the Virgin Mary. Uh, and you know, in, 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 in that sense, uh, you know, Athens was quite an important place. You know, certainly from the year one thousand onwards. And uh, uh, yeah, so the, the 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 Parthenon is the Church of Saint Mary, um, and for yeah. hundreds of years, even a thousand years, that's what. Greek speakers and Latin speakers thought of it as the, uh, and of course, there's also Dionysius the Areopagite uh, and other other figures in Athens yeah. that can be drawn upon. So um, I'm very curious. You you have a nice section on medieval Athens, and one of my favorite medieval people, uh, the from the Accia. There's, there's more vowels in this name than any Ital- even Italians really need. Accioli. 
I, I think, uh, Nerio Acciaioli. Can you explain uh, Nerio and how he shows up and how he becomes the Duke of Athens, which of Midsummer's Night Dream and uh, I probably yeah, Chaucer's yeah, the Night yeah, Cha- Chaucer's yeah, yeah, the yeah, Night's yeah. Tale, probably. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the the Duchy of Athens is a title associated um, with the so-called Frankish period in Athenian history. Uh, you know, roughly from you know the, the, the beginning of the 1200s. You know, when um, well, uh, you know, Constantinople falls to, to Frankish armies, and then shortly afterwards, Athens does as well. Um, in the case of Constantinople. It's only a half century or so of Frankish occupation. Uh, in the case of, of uh, Athens, various West European rulers uh, uh, prevail in Athens um, for the next 200 years or so. Um, initially, aristocratic French families, um, and you know they, they established the Duchy of Athens, whose uh, sort of real um, location, I mean, who, whose capital is Thebes, but nonetheless it incorporates Athens as well. Um, then there's a period uh, of control by Catalan mercenaries, of all things, of all, you know, uh, the Catalan soldiers. Those are some tough SOBs, the, cat, the free company of the, the free company of Catalan. They And it's, I mean, the, the Catalans left, left very little uh, trace of their presence um, in, in, in <laughs> except that I'm told that sort of into the, 19th, earliest 20th century, there was an expression in colloquial Greek, um, Catalanos, I'm, I'm, I'm a Catalan, meaning I'm very angry. Um, now, yeah. uh, I, 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 that does not survive in, in, in present day modern Greek, but apparently it did survive <laughs> in, in, yeah. into modern yeah. times. Um, and, and then the finally, cal- they were the, the cal- yeah. Uh, the, 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 finally, yes, the dynasty of the now, I would call them. Achiawoli, yes. I mean, they, of course, they, they were. Uh, yes, it's, it's 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 a tongue twister, isn't it? I mean, they came initially from Florence. They were kind of uh, Achiawoli was the Italian for steel, isn't it? So, uh, you know, they were they were sort of metallurgists in northern Italy. Um, then they became associated with the royal house of of Naples, and they gained sort of high office in the in the court of Naples. And then, you know, they became well soldiers of fortune and opportunistic sort of. Um, landholders and conquerors in, in Greece. Um, uh, and yes, as you say, sort of, you know, um, uh, Nerio Achiawoli, uh, you know, who, who died in, uh, in 1394 as master of the Acropolis, was, a, was, a, was a, a colorful figure. I mean, he was, um, and the, the Achiawoli were obviously a large extended family, uh, and he was not even that closely related to the previous members of the family who had been active in Greece, but he was somehow adopted as the uh, as the chief representative of the family in in Greece. Um, uh, and uh, I mean, in, in a sense, what he's chiefly remembered for is his will, um, which actually which heaped beneficence, beneficence on uh, the Parthenon, the the Chiesa di Santa Maria, as he would have called it. You know, the the uh, the, the, the Church of the, I mean, uh, and well. It, it, and if you look at his will, I mean, it tells you that uh, it was already a very important place of worship, you know, with, you know, say, a dozen priests or so. And he's adding, you know, uh, he, he wants sort of at least 20 priests to be saying masses for him. He wants to be buried there, um, you know, and, uh, and, and, and some silver has been taken from the doors of the Parthenon, you know, uh, uh, you know for, uh, and he wants to put it back. Um, uh, so he's, he's, he's hoping to save his soul posthumously by piling beneficence on, on, on the Parthenon as a church. 
Uh, and this includes, I mean, he literally, you know, Athens as a city, as, as, as a town, is really not much more than a, you know, a straggling village. Uh, and But he, he sort of, formally speaking, sort of uh, bequeaths the entire sort of town, his, his holdings in the town of Athens, which seemed to be most of whatever the town of Athens was, uh, uh, to the to the Parthenon, um, uh, and he also bequeaths his stud farms to the Parthenon. So it's you know he he piles benefits on this on this holy place, you know in in the hope perhaps of of, of saving his soul. Mm. Um, Athens, as you said, is 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 essentially an extended village or a village living amongst the ruins of a city, like so yeah. many of uh, well, yeah, as yeah, Rome yes. was in many ways. Um, Town of twenty thousand, forty thousand, amidst a city built for a million. Um, fast forward again. Uh, the uh, what's the next two hundred years? There are continual wars between. Well, every seemingly ethnicity in Eastern Europe has by thirteen hundred, fourteen hundred, ended up in Greece. Uh, Albanians, Vlachs, Bulgars, yeah. Serbs—they yeah. all have showed up. Catalans, yeah. even, and Italians, yeah. um, Sicilians, and French. Everyone is. In, it, it, it seems like the entire genetic pool of Europe yeah. pours into Greece during the Middle Ages. That's important to realize. Uh, but of course, the the final arrivals—well, not the final, but the the sort of the people who put their last stamp on Athens are the Ottomans. Um, but that's relatively late, isn't it? Uh, I mean, the, the, the Venetians are still fighting in the 1600s with the with the Ottomans for possession of, of parts of Greece and and for uh, Athens. Yes, but yes, but, but yes, but Athens. Well, yes, but well, I mean, first of all, one should say that sort of, yeah, certainly there were all manner of sort of uh, of, of conflicts and even legal arguments over Athens in the in the final years of the Frankish uh, period, you know, in, 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 the, in the early 1400s. But this was all taking place against a background of kind of, of broad Ottoman sort of, um, in the loosest sense, control over the region. You know, the, 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 the Ottomans uh, in those early decades of the 15th century were actually the regulators of the various disputes between Christian potentates um, as to who should prevail in Athens. Um, uh, and 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 you you see, you know, each party in these intra-Christian disputes sort of running to the Sultan or Sultan's representative, and trying to cu- carry favour with the Sultan. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then finally, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, after the after the conquest of of, of Constantinople, you know, then you know it, it, it's the turn of uh, Athens uh, to be taken over by Mehmed the Conqueror, who's depicted in in one account as a great Philhellene and somebody who had. Great, uh, you know, uh, admiration for the legacy of ancient Greece. Uh, now, you know, and, and the precise timings are disputed, but clearly by, you know, 1470, 1480, uh, you know, Athens was uh, formally under Ottoman control, and it then, you know, would would remain so until, to be precise, 1833 uh, was actually when the last Ottoman. Government, um, so, um, after some colourful events during during the Greek War of Independence. Um, but I mean, uh, I mean, I mean it, it, well, let's talk. Let's let's talk. Let's talk about the Greek War of Independence because I know this yeah, is yeah, you yeah. say is your favorite, your favorite, your favorite part. Um, uh, and this is one which I, I I know lamentably little about. Um, this is uh, it, it, oddly enough, it's for English speakers. It's characterized by two lords, uh, Elgin and Byron. Um, sort of our, our, our key 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 players in the end of the Ottoman rule over Athens. So let's. What did Lord Elgin really do? 
Yeah, yes, well, yes, well, no, yes. Well, no, we're talking about the kind of the, the, the twilight of Ottoman rule here, although it, it yeah. would not necessarily have been evident to anybody at the time that, that Ottoman rule over Athens was 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 doomed to to end. Um, but nonetheless, yes, as, as things things were very sort of intense in Athens because mainly because of um, you know this overwhelming sort of Franco-British competition for influence in the East Mediterranean. You know, Athens became one of the many theatres of that competition. Um, and indeed, the antiquities of Athens were one of the objects in disputes, one, um, among the apples of discord, uh, shall we say. So, um, Lord Elgin, right, I mean, he, he, he was, um, you know, a, a Scotsman of immensely blue blood, um, uh, not, not personally very rich until... Uh, he married a somewhat younger lady who was one of the greatest heiresses uh, in the kingdom. Uh, and so um, at, 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 at the very end of the 18th century, he takes up his post as ambassador of um, Great Britain to the port, to, 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 to the sultan, uh, with two purposes in mind. Um, one is to reinforce the strategic alliance between Britain and the Ottomans against the French. Um, but also uh, to, uh, in some way or other, and it, initially it's not quite clear how, um, to bring the legacy and the magic of ancient Greece um, back from uh, from Greece itself um, to his own country. Uh, and for the past 50 years at least, there has been this obsessive idea among the elites of Western Europe um, that you know, there is something magical about the heritage of ancient Greece uh, and if we can somehow bring it northwards, uh, we will enhance our own empires, our own cities. Uh, we will endow them with the the magic of ancient Greece. And this could take various forms. It could take the form of you know, very careful drawing and mapping and painting of the antiquities. Or ultimately, it could take the form of physically removing objects. Uh, and you can see in Elgin's mind... You know, uh, there's a certain uh, ambivalence from the very beginning. Is is he in the business of, of documenting the antiquities, or does he actually want to physically remove them? Now, um, in the fateful year of 1801, uh, the the, um, the the British and the Ottomans are jointly fighting the uh, the French in Egypt. Um, so, um, with every passing month, um, the the depth of the Anglo Ottoman relationship uh, grows, uh, and as a result, you know the opportunities um, for Elgin's cultural activities, shall we say, uh, you know, b- become even greater. Um, now, uh, you know, per- perhaps we shouldn't overstress Elgin himself. I mean, he, but he, he was surrounded by some very energetic and um, ambitious people, uh, including you know his wealthy wife, his parents-in-law, um, and a rather worldly clergyman who was his assistant, uh, a young man called Philip Hunt. Um, now, um, between them, you know, these, these characters managed by the beginning of July 1801 to procure from a senior Ottoman official um, a document uh, which on the face of things uh, seemed to allow them to gather up stones, certain precious stones, um, uh, uh, Qualche piezza di Petra. We only have it in Italian translation for some reason. Uh, but, but, but apart from the ground of the Acropolis, from, from the surface um, 
uh, and and perhaps below the surface. And that, that was the interpretation uh, as of beginning of July 1801. Now, in the course of that faithful month, uh, Philip Hunt, assistant to Elgin, um, uh, saw that there was an opportunity, as he put it, to stretch or extend the meaning of that permit <coughs> to allow a systematic removal of the sculptures that were actually still attached to the temples on the Acropolis, uh, you know, mostly the Parthenon, but also the Erechtheon. Um, and so from the end of July 1801, for the following two years, you know, an enormous operation was in progress to literally uh, you know, strip the lion's share of the Periclean sculptures um, from uh, the Acropolis monuments. And this included um, you know, about half the Parthenon frieze, this extraordinary uh, you know, set of um, relief figures, uh, 160 meters in length, which show a kind of procession of uh, chariots and horses and uh, bas- you know, basket bearers and uh, men and women of Athens, um, you know, a, gr- a great uh, depiction of the collective life or the collective imagination of the Athenians, uh, you know, conceived clearly as a single work of art. Um, and, uh, you know, Elgin's people, Elgin's agents, managed to physically remove about half of that, uh, and that half is now what's in the British Museum to this day. Um, so that and, and that about whatever else Elgin may have done, you know, he he's associated in our collective memory more than anything else um, with the removal of those sculptures. And then, as you say, there's another figure who, you know, who, another uh, uh, aristocrat raised in Scotland uh, who enters the picture. Uh, who rides into Athens as, a, as, a, as, a, as, an, as, as an arrogant and brilliant young man, uh, a, a, an, an immense gift for uh, poetry, for an, an, an immensely sensitive ear for language, uh, and eventually very, very keen powers of observation. This brilliant young man rides into Athens uh, on Christmas Eve, 1809. Um, you know, he spent uh, the rest of the winter there, um, he then uh, spends another winter there, 1810 to 1811, and absolutely falls in love with the place um, and, and, and comes to a very different feeling about Athens than any of his predecessors, his previous sort of wealthy West European travelers had done. I mean, he had the impertinent, pertinent then idea uh, that, 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 that Greece should be free. In other words, that the definition of Greece uh, in, in modern times should be made by people who identify as Greek. It shouldn't be something that foreigners come in and impose on this place, um, but the, 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 there should be a, a, a free state uh, uh, peopled by Greeks, run by Greeks, uh, who, would go out, who would go about the business of defining uh, what, you know, what Greekness meant and still means. And that, that was an extraordinary idea. Um, which came to Byron and which made him a very sharp and acerbic critic of what Elgin had done. Mm-hmm. And yeah, ultimately, I mean, this is, it's really hard to convey Byron's persona. It's, here we have a celebrity poet, aristocrat, nationalist, uh, freedom fighter. Uh, there's, there's hardly anyone ever like him before or since. And he dies in the service of this Greek idea, ideal. Yes, that's right. I mean, he dies, you know, of, of, of disease. But nonetheless, he yes, he he wouldn't have died had he not been sort of in a remote place in central Greece. Uh, so yes, in an important sense, he he gives his life for the Greek struggle, and he was also. I mean, he was a, um, 
he, he became a sort of a power broker in Greek affairs by the, I mean, you know, the, the Greek independence war broke out uh, you know, in 1821. Um, uh, in other words, sort of a, a, a decade or so after his initial kind of youthful encounter with Athens. Um, but, but, you know, Byron quickly emerges as somebody who uh, negotiates with the various Greek warlords and chieftains, you know, many of whom are, are, are sort of in conflict with one another. Uh, and, uh, of course, you know, lo lo looking for British funding and looking for playing on Philhellenic sentiment among the British and other West Europeans. And, you know, Byron has the measure of these, you know, uh, rival conflicting Greek warlords very well. He understands their, their psychology well. He kind of, he understands their failings. He forgives their failings. Um, and he was, you know, he, he emerges as quite a shrewd power broker in, in Greek affairs, I think. Of course, he, you know, he didn't live long enough to see, you know, the, 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 the final victory. Uh, but, you know, this, I think it can validly be said that um, he gave his life for the Greek struggle. He was, you know, he, 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 he found himself... You know, in, uh, you know, dying in a remote place, and not of war wounds, but of, of disease. Uh, but was, you know, it was a death that wouldn't have occurred, uh, you know, uh, had he not committed himself to the Greek struggle. Um, I'm, just as we uh, conclude, um, it's very interesting when G Greece is finally uh, liberated and the Ottomans are are depart. Um, there's, is there ever much of a question whether or not Athens will be the capital of a new Greece? Uh, and because if you look at it from a perspective of a thousand years prior, well, actually, or certainly uh, fifteen hundred years prior, Spartans would say, you know, uh, well, Mystras is nice. Uh, the, the the Vale of Sparta is a great place to have a a king uh, a capital of Greece. The Thebans, uh, obviously, they've got the problem of their backing the Persians after Thermopylae. But yeah, Thebes is also is is much could be said to be much more the center of Greece. It's not evident from a classical perspective that Athens should necessarily be the capital of Greece. But my thought is is that in eighteen thirties there was no other contender really for that position, which is interesting. The way that Athens had become Greece and Greece had become Athens. Well, interestingly, uh, I mean, the, you know, there the were the, certainly there was a, in a there was a year or two when it was proposed that Nopleon, in modern Greek pronunciation, Naphleon, uh, the port mm. that port in the Peloponnese, uh, would make a better capital, um, simply because it, it had it had been functioning as the de facto capital of free Greece um, during the independence war, um, and you know, so, so the, the question of where the capital would be did did hang in the balance for a couple of years. I suppose, you know, I mean, Athens had the advantage that it could be, uh, you know, it, it could be a nodal point for uh, the Peloponnese and for Central Greece, which had, and each of which had constituted a separate theater of war uh, during the independence struggle. Uh, and so, the, uh, but also, you know, I suppose the, um, you know, the building up of Athens as the center of a Greek kingdom very much coincided with the advent of the monarchy, the, the, you know, the, the Bavarian monarchy, ultimately. You know, they, they found you know, a, a, a spare princeling uh, in young um, Otto or Othon in his Greek pronunciation of Bavaria. Um, and uh, along with his Bavarian advisors, you know, they, they, they set about um, intensively sort of Reclassizing Athens uh, and remaking the, you know, half ruined town of Athens. Uh, so, uh, you know, in, in the very early years of Athens as capital, 
you have an extraordinary contrast between the you know frankly you know rather miserable settlement which had been very very badly damaged in war uh, of you know the, the lower town of Athens uh, and then uh, you know the, the the grand buildings that were decreed uh, by the sort of barbarian advised king first and foremost his palace uh, you know a great barrack of a building designed you know by German hands uh, in the very middle of Athens um, now the Parliament building. Uh, so you, know, you, you had from the very beginning a contrast between the sort of top-down design of the monarchy and the Bavarian advisors and you know and, and the Greek elite, shall we say, and then the more spontaneous uh, emergence of Athens as a human settlement, which sort of somehow you know uh, seemed to elude the you know the, 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 the plans of the designers somehow. I, I wanted to uh, finish up with just asking you about two things. Um, um, you've written a previous book about uh, an event um, which is sadly overlooked at the base of the expulsion of the um, of Greeks from yeah. Asia Minor uh, after uh, during the uh, Greek Turkish War of what 1920 1924 uh, is that well it, 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 yes it, I mean, it came to an end in 1922 yes yes so that's so 1922 yes yeah, sorry yes and um, and uh, it's a massive uh, uh, it's a massive a change of, of population uh, of going from one place to the other also as well as a, a cultural change of uh, of epic proportions um, and of course in the last 10 years we've seen another movement of peoples across the Aegean into Greece and I, I'm just as I've been reading uh, your book and some other uh, recently uh, published books about Greek history um, it strikes me that uh, influx, not just invasion, but population exchange, is the ob- abiding hallmark of Greek history. Um, Athens, someone new is always coming to Athens. Someone new is always coming to town. Do you do you feel that as well as you as you look as you look over the history of Athens? Uh, look, certainly there are always you know uh, well if, if, certainly if you look at the Macedonian period or the Roman periods that yes there are always. Yes, new rulers appearing, um, and but not to say that there isn't a sort of uh, a nativist Athenian sentiment among those who are you know born and bred in Athens uh, and are you know, protective of the place. I mean, I think well, t- taking the things one by one. I mean, uh, you know, certainly you know the, the influx of the 1920s, which I wrote about in another book, um, which sort of you know doubled the population of Athens of Greater Athens. Um, you know, it, it led to the emergence of you know, initially shanty towns almost, but then you know, uh, soon became you know quite poor but vigorous and 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 lively districts of Greater Athens, uh, consisting of you know recent arrivals from what Greeks would call Asia Minor, in other words, sort of you know, pre- 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 uh, Anatolia. Uh, that, you know, that it utterly uh, it, it transformed the place, but in a sense, it 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 reinforced uh, the role of Athens as the center of Hellenism. Um, because you know, prior to that influx, uh, you know, there were people in Athens who quite seriously thought that Athens is only a temporary capital because our natural capital is Constantinople, which we will one day conquer. Or, right. And, and it, not necessarily sort of, you know, against the Turks. I mean, there were those who thought that you know our future lies in Hellenizing the Ottoman Empire from within, um, and you know, and and, that, and that's how we'll recreate the you know the, the Byzantine Empire. That was a serious idea, you know, at, at the in the early years of the 20th century. 
Now, you know, f- 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 as a result of the defeat in 1922, um, you know, Athens was, for better or worse, you know, uh, reinforced as the as the hub of Hellenism. Um, you know, instead of being a place where people dreamed of expanding the borders of the state to the ultimate peripheries of the Hellenic nation. On the contrary, you know, those peripheries actually came physically into Athens um, and populated its... And and, uh, um, so, you know, there was a great concentration of Hellenism in Athens. And as you say, almost a kind of... Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, a merging of the ideas of of of, of, of Athens and Hellenism. Now, um, the, the, the influx of recent years has been sort of, it has been conceived differently. I mean, the the um, you know, the most desperate end of that influx, which is boat people, that hasn't especially affected Athens as such. Um, that's more affected the Aegean But as you know, but but there has been you know from the mid nineties onwards. Um, there has been an enormous influx of uh, quite you know, economic migrants into Athens uh, who are you know uh, who were not perceived by the existing population of Athens as um, fellow citizens or as Greeks or as even future Greeks. Uh, you know they, they were assumed to be economic migrants. You know who would stay and whose presence was tolerable. You know as long as they weren't enfranchised and as long as they didn't. Um, uh, and uh, but and but but now we're dealing with sort of a second generation, so we're dealing with an, a multicultural reality, um, which is something you know really quite new in modern Greek history, um, yeah. and, and and significantly different from uh, the 1920s uh, migration, which was conceived ideologically as kind of bringing in our own people, um, and ideologically speaking, the new influx is sort of it's. Uh, you know, people who would still, um, you know, be, be described as outsiders, I mean, perfectly welcome and tolerated outsiders, but nonetheless um, not part of the Greek family unless they can convince us otherwise. Um, and, and, and yet there are some uh, extraordinary stories of integration into the Greek mainstream, and I can tell you one if you give me time. Sure, absolutely. Go ahead. Uh, well, I mean, the, you know, uh, and this is a story I rejoice over. I mean, the uh, uh, sort of, I could almost say, popular hero of the Athenians these days, I would say, um, is a sportsman who actually lives mostly in the United States, uh, a basketball player who plays for the Milwaukee Bucks. His name is Yanis Andetokumbo. Uh, he's about seven foot tall. He grew up in a uh, dirt poor district of Athens, uh, Sepolia. Uh, you know, he sold trinkets on the street as a young man, um, and you know, and he somehow made it to the upper echelons of the sports world. Uh, he is uh, very much uh, devoted to Greece and to uh, his particular district of Athens. Uh, you know, he speaks fluent Greek, of course. Um, you know, with working class Athenian accent, um, and you know, he is he is adored by many ordinary people in Athens. And I must say that that I mean, he in a sense personifies the hope. That Athens will you know, somehow rise to the challenges of the multicultural age. Well, my guest today has been Bruce Clark. He is author mm-hmm. of Athens, City of Wisdom. Bruce Clark, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Yeah. Three, two, one.